Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. This is Sex and Science Hour. Welcome to the party. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Brian, you're pointing to your headphones. Is, is there some kind of problem? No, I think it's okay. I think my gain's down Do we have a, a problem here? Do you know why I pulled you over? <laughs> I'm sorry, Brian. <laughs> Speechless. <laughs> yeah, I did change the audio settings a little bit, but nobody wants to hear about that. So as long as you're okay with it, we'll keep rolling. Are you okay with it, or you want to stop and adjust? Am I free to go? Am I being detained? You're free to go. Okay. But not, not before I frisk you. <laughs> I'm going to have to frisk you. <laughs> right. Oh, oh my. God. Uh-huh. You know, I, like... Cop there- cop role play doesn't even turn me on, really. Like I, I, it can be humorous sometimes, I guess, if you're like a white person who doesn't have to worry about getting killed by the yeah. police. But like, I don't know. It just there's so much force involved that it just doesn't turn me on. It's not sexy, you know, to think of a situation where you might be faced with a cop who's extorting you for sex. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I. No I matter agree. how hot they are, like, no, just no. Like, if you want to be dominated, go to a dominatrix, right? <laughs> be, do BDSM that doesn't involve the state, please. Yes, that's my feeling on it. Anyway, I, I, no, I don't no, know if you I, I agree. disagree or agree, but. <laughs> I'm going to say, like, I've done it in the past, but I mean, I was a very, well, I wasn't like a very different person. Yeah, that, that's what, you do it when you're young and you yeah, don't know, exactly. you don't think about it too much, right? Exactly. Like, <laughs> if you start thinking about it, then you're like, like wait a minute, this, this is, is fucked up. up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, you know what's not fucked up? Okay, everybody who knows me on social media, like, if you're my personal Facebook friend, you know that I love bats. Bat, a bat yes. is like my spirit animal. Like, I love bats. They can fly. First of all, they can fly. They're not like, you know, the typical free bird kind of thing. But I like freedom, so I like flying things, things that can fly. But bats are just different. Like, everybody kind of underestimates them. A lot of people don't like them, don't give them a second chance. But they're very intelligent, and they're very capable. Yeah. And they're soft. They're actually soft. beautiful. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of different kinds of bats. They're adaptable. They can fly. They they can work together in a community. And they can also do things like hang upside down. And, you know, they're amazing little creatures. And without them, there would be a lot more bugs in the world. And that would not be good, because we'd all be itchier. So... Yay for bats. Bats are great survivors. <laughs> so I really life. love bats. I constantly share bat pictures and bat memes on Facebook and things like that. And a, a lot of people probably think I'm nuts, but that's okay. Uh, but anyway, as a result of that, because people know I like bats, they send me bat articles and bat pictures for me to appreciate. 
And I got one from a Facebook friend this week. And um, this was actually so interesting that I thought we would use it as the opener for our show. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, here we go. From Smithsonian Magazine, researchers translate bat talk, and it turns out they talk to each other. And not only that, but they argue a lot. How interesting is that? Yeah, that isn't is that cool? So it turns out that bats have some something of a language and that they're they're actually talking to each other and they can make these different little calls. And when the researchers kind of figured out their code of, of what these calls meant, a lot of them were actually arguing. They were saying, hey, get out, get out of here, get out of my space. I want some more space. <laughs> and the other bats were like, no, I don't want to get out of here. Is this like in Sequest where they could talk to the dolphin Darwin? It's like, well, kind of. I mean, Darwin dolph- swim. <laughs> you know, gorillas. Um, there's have been gorillas that have been taught human sign language, thousands of yes. words, right? That they can communicate with with basic sign language, um, American sign language. And there's uh, dolphins have this sonopictorial language where they communicate with the uh, the vibrations. Right. Sure. And they have the, the organ in their brain that detects those vibrations and can translate it into a, a sort of a picture of what's what's trying to be communicated. Right. So animals have language. You know, some other animals besides humans have language. It may not be the same language that we're used to as humans, but so what? It's still language and they're still communicating with each other. Well, it makes sense. I mean, since bats are such a sonar or sonic based Yeah, uh, it's almost like dolphins. That's right, because well, they're trying to navigate and find things and they they use that sonar or that echolocation. Right. I mean, it, just hearing is such an important sense for them. You know, more so yeah. than than just about any other that it would make sense that yeah, they're giant ears. Well, that they would develop some kind of primitive language while at the same st- same time like, I, I don't think this is, I mean, I want to hear more. I don't think it's an argument, though, that bats are, say, at the level of intelligence of, you know, even a dolphin. Or oh, an no, they're not making that or, argument. They're just right. saying that now we know that or now scientists know that bats are actually speaking to each other and communicating in a way that we didn't understand before. Sure. Absolutely. I could believe it. So here's the gist of it. Plenty of animals communicate with each other, uh, at least in a general way. Wolves howl to each other, birds sing and dance to attract mates, and big cats mark their territory with pee. (laughs) But researchers at Tel Aviv University, they said urine, not pee. I added that. Um, (laughs) But researchers at Tel Aviv University recently discovered that when at least one species communicates, it gets very specific. Egyptian fruit bats, it turns out, aren't just making high-pitched squeaks when they gather together in their roosts. They're communicating specific problems, reports. Bob Yurka at fizz.org. According to Raymond Skiba at Nature, neuroecologist Yossi Yavel and his colleagues recorded a group of 22 Egyptian fruit bats for 75 days. Hold on, hold on. I call bullshit. Like, I know Egyptians, you know, they communicate with hieroglyphs. They, they, they don't, not, not with... <laughs> right, but that's that's the humans, not oh, the bats. Oh, not the... Oh, the, yeah. right, the bats. We're talking right. about bats here. Why, wouldn't the bats do that, too? Come on. All right, never mind. Go. Well, the bats were... Didn't they find bats in the pyramids or something? Oh, I don't know. I don't I don't think much of anything you're going to find alive in there because oh. the oxygen levels are so... Yeah, no, I mean, I guess not deep within the pyramids, but I don't know. There's There's got to be bats, like, roosting in the very outer parts of the pyramids. Bats are great survivors. <laughs> they are. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, uh, so this this scientist recorded a group of um, Egyptian fruit bats for 75 days. And then using a modified machine learning algorithm originally developed for recognizing human voices, they fed 15,000 calls into the software. And then they analyzed the corresponding video to see if they could match the calls to certain activities. So they were trying to translate the sounds that the bats were making. Okay. They found that the bat noises were not just random as previously thought. They were able to classify 60% of the calls into one of four categories. One of the call types indicates that bats are arguing about food. Another indicates a dispute about their positions within the sleeping cluster. A third call is reserved for males making unwanted mating advances. And the fourth happens when a bat argues with another bat sitting too close. In fact, bats make slightly different versions of the calls when speaking to different individuals within the group, similar to a human using a different tone of voice when talking to different people. Skiba points out that besides humans, only dolphins and a handful of other species are known to address individuals rather than making broad communication sounds. Well, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? So they're talking to specific bats and they use a different tone of voice. Hmm. And so what do they talk about? Well, they argue about where they're sleeping within the group of bats. I want to be in the middle. No, I want to be in the edge. Well, it's a damn fine thing to argue about. (laughs) Right? They (laughs) argue about unwanted mating advances. Hey, get lost. Is that bat calling, I guess? (laughs) Not cat calling, it's bat calling. Um, (laughs) They argue about food, and then they argue about one bat to another. Hey, you're too close to me. So that's isn't that fascinating? The life of a bat. Yeah, I had no idea, uh, I mean, that, that they had anything that uh, evolved. Yeah, it's uh, very sophisticated. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that again, that it would, because it is like the primary way that they interact with the world, not just each other. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for that to get to such a high level, even though still within instinct, I would assume it's still within instinct. Um, I mean, well, that's it's not clear. They don't know if it's instinctual or if they learn those calls. Well, but... Because yeah, they only I, studied one particular group of a species of bats. Right. They don't know if it applies more broadly to other species of bats or other uh, tribes of bats. Sure, right. Yeah, so what I mean by acting within instinct, I mean, like, you, if you act outside of instinct, you have consciousness. Now, I'm totally open to that mm. there's animals out there that have, that have achieved that level, um, you know, of, of mentality, like dolphins, perhaps even cephalopods, uh, or, uh, yeah, uh, you know, Octopuses. Octopi. Yeah. And um, elephants. Elephants and, yeah. and, you know, and chimpanzees maybe and some others. Uh, you know, I don't know that that bats would necessarily do that. But then, you know, does the size of the brain matter that much? I don't know. Uh, but it's interesting, again, considering like the, the, the high level of precision that of sonar effectively that they use. Like, I wonder if that's why they are so uniquely for for such a, you know, less intelligent animal, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, why they why they can identify individuals yeah. because they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's different. Oh, know, yeah. Because because they that's bounce sonar... off, off the bat's face and they can get an image of the face. Yeah. I mean, effectively, like in, in the right conditions, like that sonar is better than vision, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so like better than human vision. Um, I, I mean, that's been known for some time. So that's that's interesting. And that's probably why they can pick out individuals, not because they're that smart, but just because by default, they're, oh, they're their, good their at senses it. just know. Yeah, like, they're I made mean, for it. Right. It's impossible for them to, to, to consider it otherwise. Uh, so that I mean, yeah, I agree. That is absolutely fascinating. Yes. Well, speaking of being able to pick out individuals from a lineup of similar things. Wait, are we sex... going back to the cop role play? <laughs> no. No, okay. 
sex robots. That's the lineup, boys. <laughs> sex robots apparently are going to be available next year for $12,000. What? Sex robots with fully functional genitalia to arrive next year. This is from Black who? From Pigeon where? Speaks. Uh, it's from a company in California called Abyss Creations. I am... They make the real doll, which have built-in heaters so they can have genuine body warmth and sensors that can react to touch. I need They're to call some people in Japan because this is, they are behind the times. Well, yeah, I mean, nobody has, there have been sex dolls available that are pretty realistic, but they're, you know, the price point has never been down that low. Ah, okay. I, th- okay. I would say they've been more in the $30,000, $20,000 range, something like that. Sure. And probably not as good. But basically, I see you've been uh, researching and looking into it. Well, we talk about one. it like nearly every week on the show. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a topic that comes up quite often. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I basically, I was going to say capitalism is making sex robots cheaper and more available. Oh, yeah, of course. And it's completely objectifying uh, right. <laughs> sexuality and female yeah. sexuality. Yeah, right. what a shock. Yep, that's capitalism yeah. for you. All right. Um, <laughs> so uh, this this blog is reporting it as bad news for women in general. And I don't know if I agree. I don't really necessarily agree with that. Actually, I don't agree with that at all, that it's bad news for women. I think it's great news for everybody. Um, it's a choice. You know, sure. it means that less women will have to do work, sex work that they don't want to do because there's more options about doing that kind of sex work. Um, and there's still always going to be a market for people wanting to have sex with actual people rather than, um, you know, sex robots or, or VR. Forever. There's a fetish for everything. And that fe- that at the very least will exist as a fetish, if not a biological Right. Drive of some kind. And if you're ladies, if you're worried if that your husband is going to cheat on you with a sex robot, I don't know what to tell you. I'll like, tell you. Let him go. Yeah, right. Just like it's, fucking good. Drop the bum. Good. Better you know? than cheating with a regular person <laughs> yeah. who can give you a STD or whatever. Well, sure. Right? That too. But I'm just or saying. Or you can fall in love with more easily. Right. Yeah. But like if, you know, if you have, if you take issue with that and like, you know, you find out that he wasn't. Well, I don't know. I just think take it as a sign. That's all. Like if you're scared that you're going to lose your partner to a sex robot. Yeah, I agree. Then maybe the relationship is on some shaky footing. But right. But I would say, like, you know, let invite me. right? (laughs) (laughs) Let's both party with the sex robot. Uh, (laughs) Well, I've said this many times on this show. That's the real market for these things is going to be threesomes is threesomes, foursomes. Yeah. Couples. Yeah. Yeah. That might be kind of cool because you don't have to, like, traumatize another person with your awkward threesome advances. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have um, to be awkward, but yeah. We should try that. If we ever have the opportunity, Brian, we should have a threesome with a sex robot and report back to Sex and Science Hour for science, of course. We might need a few more minds on that one. Yeah, we might. And a few more thousand dollars, because, you yeah. know, what can I say? We fund the show from our stuff.sexandsciencehour.com, and we're not making 12000 I guarantee somebody would hook us up if, if we said we want one of these damn things. Probably. Yeah. They probably would if we made a video. <laughs> if you're willing to do it without the video, let's talk. We're coming up at Sex and Science Hour. Hey, okay, the future is here, and obviously it's coming up very fast. Bats are talking to each other, sex robots are coming on the market, and Brian does a show every Saturday called Sovereign Tech, where he talks about technology and freedom. What is the world coming to? 
Well, I, I tried to predict, uh, and actually, I don't do a, a half bad job, uh, personally. Uh, I think you lo- do a great job. A lot of my little predictions I've made on the show over the past five years of its existence have actually come into fruition pretty hardcore. So. It's Name one. What, what's your favorite one? Uh, boy, the Amazon World Domination Tour. Oh, um, yeah. I you call this... To listen to Sovereign Tech if you want to find out yeah. about that. For... It's my favorite podcast yeah. aside from Sex and Science Hour. So well, I'm honored. S-O-V-R-Y-N Tech.com. This is Sex and Science Hour. We're back. We never left. I've always been here. <laughs> when there was one set of footsteps, we carried you. <laughs> Sex and Science Hour. <laughs> we did not forsake you. We carried you. <laughs> oh, good one. Right. Thank you. I've, I've got For anybody who doesn't know this, that, get the reference. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty much a, a religious meme that you see on like every old church lady's refrigerator, every every yep. church or synagogue. I even learned that, and I was Jewish. Same I didn't here. learn it about Jesus. I learned about God, but same thing, right? So the idea is like whoa, there's a person. Whoa, whoa. Same thing. Well, whoa. it's a variation. It's variations on a theme. All right. Um, <laughs> the idea of the story. Get in trouble for that. It's a parable. I don't know if it comes from the. It doesn't come from the Bible, no, right? Not it's at like all. not at all. It has no biblical. It's basis. a modern thing. Yeah. Um, it's a parable about a person who's walking down a beach, and the beach represents their life. And at the most difficult times of their life, I, I, they first they see two sets of footprints, which one of them is their footprints, and the other one is God or Jesus walking alongside them. Yeah. So it's like God is walking with you throughout your life, and then they see Creeper. at the difficult times of your life. They only see one set of footprints and they're like, God, what's up with that? Where did you go during the hard times of my life? You left me alone to walk on the beach by myself? What is this? And God says, no, my child, when you only saw one set of footprints, that's when I was carrying you. <laughs> it's so insulting. It's it's like Jesus just saying, no, look, you're such a wuss. This is when I had to carry you. You know, and it's, it's... I, so I don't bad. know. About, I mean, it's I guess I guess it could be comforting. But like, I don't know. Sometimes it's not comforting because it's like if you're having a, a hard time in life and someone's like, oh, don't worry, Jesus is carrying you. And you're like, I don't feel like anybody's carrying me. I don't feel like anyone's supporting me. I don't yeah. feel like I'm getting the support that I need. And, it, you know, what are you supposed to do? Then that just kind of invalidates your feelings. And it's not that comforting. But I guess some people find comfort in that parable, I suppose. Yeah, you know, you know, like a good, like a good friend, a good neighbor. Jesus is there to to support you during the hardest times of your life. His yoke is light, and what I say to that is, I like my eggs heavy. And <laughs> <laughs> so nothing. Anyway, sorry. well, I mean, if Enough. we if we make that about like a friend or something, I think that's that's nice, you know, because when you, when you have hard times of your life, that's when you'd need someone to support you. Yeah, I'd like to find but. a friend that could carry me. Yeah, I know. I don't know if anyone could carry me. I can I carry you. You know, I have a friend who is a petite woman. Mm. She's very beautiful, mm. very little though. Yes. And she just told me that she wants to pick me up and carry me, like in her <laughs> arms. She wants to pick me up. And I was like, wow, that first thing I thought was, woo, that sounds really fun. I love to be picked up and carried. But second thing I thought was like, oh, my God, I'm going to crush her. I hope I don't crush her. I feel really ha- heavy and fat right now. <laughs> so uh, 
as long as you pick me up and carry me at your own risk, I, I guess we're good. I'll play backup if needed. Okay. Because <laughs> I have carried you around. <laughs> yes. You do. You do, Ash, all the time. Yeah. It's really fun. <laughs> you, I'm not worried about crushing because you work out. You lift weights. You're strong. Thank you. Not to say that my friend doesn't. She She's strong, too. She works out. But I'm sure. It's just when you see such a big difference in size. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so the first synthetic yeast genome has been designed, Brian. What are we going to do with that? I don't know. We'll find out in this article here. Um, not brew beer on the moon, apparently, because that's our next article. <laughs> what? Um, they, you'll see. It's all connected. The first synthetic yeast genome has been designed. This is by Catherine Lindernan from ResearchGate. Researchers have designed a fully artificial yeast genome and started the process of constructing it. The design of the first fully synthetic yeast genome has been unveiled in a study published in Science. The artificial genome, called SC2.0, is about 8% smaller than that of natural yeast. Now that the design is complete, the team plans to integrate it within living yeast cells. They have already made significant progress towards this goal, with six complete artificial chromosomes so far. Yeast typically has 16 chromosomes, and the artificial yeast will also feature an additional neochromosome to which all the protein-making machinery has been moved. This makes the genome more easily customizable. Once all 17 synthetic chromosomes are injected into a single cell, the newly designed genome will be complete. And so then they interviewed the lead author of this paper. So basically what they did is take yeast yeast genes, or maybe they invented some genes. I think they probably took like natural yeast genes and just reorganized them into a different, they shuffled them around. They put all the protein synthetic genes on one chromosome, and then they moved the other ones into different other chromosomes. And now it's like so-called more efficient, right, than nature did. All right, hold on. But there's always a reason nature keeps things as they are. Evolution's pretty much the most efficient. If pumpernickel suddenly, my pumpernickel suddenly starts turning into sourdough, Okay, because you know, right. life finds a way, yeah, right? Yeah, right. I'm gonna, you know, it's switching genders here. I'm, I'm gonna be fucking pissed because, because yeah. then I'm gonna be like, wait a minute, what the hell was in that carton? What was in that bag? <laughs> like, that's that is not okay with me. This takes genetically modified organism to a new level. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I mean, and 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 how crazy though, you know, to 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 start off with something that that drives people literally mad, you know, with the uh, drives- brain brain. Oh, with great. Oh, yeah. If with, you end up, you you know, well, I'm. I'm well, being, that's the wheat, not the yeast itself. But well, that's a good point. I, I take your point. Yeast actually is good because supposedly when you're ta- when you're talking about gluten sensitivity and gluten allergies, and we've talked about that extensively on the show, um, yeast supposedly breaks down the gluten. So, like soy sauce, for example, oh. if you're really seriously celiac, don't even go there, Brian. <laughs> if you are really seriously celiac. You can't eat soy sauce because it contains wheat. You have to have tamari, which is just the soybeans and rice. Yeah. Um, typically, you know, conventional soy sauce contains wheat. But if you're just gluten sensitive and not like full blown horrible celiac, you can eat soy sauce and you won't get sick mm. because the yeast actually the the fermentation process breaks down the gluten that was in that wheat. So is this uh, is this new yeast uh, infection uh, resistant? Uh, no comment, Brian, no comment. So (laughs) according to the uh, lead author of this study, um, they asked him like, okay, so it, it, the author is uh, Joel Bader, a biomedical engineer at Johns Hopkins university to tell us more about the design and and the yeast. Butler calls him master, master Bader. (laughs) 
Oh, my God. Yes. Well, I'm pretty sure if you're a biomedical scientist, you don't have a butler because you can't afford one because oh, you're come poor. On. This guy's inventing new yeast. Yeah, Eesh. you would think. But it's one of those things where, like, you know, everybody thinks radio star like radio hosts make a lot of money. They don't. Guess what? Oh, They're no, they don't. Poor. And yeah. <laughs> also scientists, even famous scientists, usually they don't make a lot of money. But, I mean, some of them do. It just depends on where they yeah. work and stuff. But especially if they're newly famous because they've just published some new paper or something, they're likely not, you know, they're likely not having butlers hey, waiting on them hand and foot in the lab. <laughs> so, Well, I think this is tantamount to being like Batman, and you got to have a butler if you're going to be Batman. But all right, go for it. <laughs> so uh, they say, what motivated this project? Joel Bader says, there are a number of important research questions that can only be answered by designing and synthesizing a completely new genome. Questions like how chromosomes are organized, why genes are organized the way we observe them, and what the functions of supposedly non-functional elements are. And he's talking about junk DNA. What yeah. is the point of junk DNA? Well, how do, you, how do you find out unless you just delete it all and you put it all, like rearrange all the genes into new chromosomes? Right. That's what he's talking about. Um, then he says there are the applied questions, whether we can make the genome more modular by collecting genes in a single pathway or process onto a single chromosome called neochromosomes. This would make pathways more amenable to study and easier to manipulate and optimize. So he's saying, okay, well, what happens if you put all the related genes together on one chromosome? That'd be interesting, right? Sure, yeah. To figure out, because right now it's just a mishmash. They're all kind of shuffled on different chromosomes. Um, except, I suppose, like the region of the, the sex-determining region of the Y chromosome, right? That makes people male, that confers yeah, yeah. maleness, yeah. supposedly. Yeah. Um, and, and we're going to talk more about that, too, later on a previous, on a next show, because um, I have this whole article about, like, the... Uh, the problems with like chromosomes and like how people can actually how it's not as simple as like x is female y is male uh-huh well, well let's play off the t's yeah um so what is the ultimate goal of this project well the author says optimizing yeast for new products or to give yeast capabilities it lacks for example synthesizing drugs and pharmaceuticals in new yeast strains all right more coming up it's all about the drugs <laughs> All right. This is Sex and Science Hour. Um, I like to promote my audiobooks in this segment. By now, you know that you can search for my name, Stephanie Murphy, on audible.com, and you can find lots of audiobooks that I've narrated. But this time, I wanted to share a comment on one of the audiobooks from a listener. They said they were at the gym listening to my audiobook, From Coping to Thriving, How to Turn Self-Care into a Way of Life by Hannah Brain. Great audiobook and Absolutely. great book. And so this person said they were listening to it at the gym, and there was a part of the book that said, laughter is the best medicine. And it said, laugh at something. It doesn't need to be highbrow. So then they thought of fart jokes and they started laughing. So, <laughs> hey, it's true. It, it doesn't works. need to be highbrow. Laugh at something. Or could so, be master baiter. Yeah. So from Coping to Thriving, and I'm Stephanie Murphy on Audible. Yeah. Check me out. Oh, we're back. It's segment three. And guess what? It's the sex segment now. Everybody's Aren't you excited, favorite. Brian? Yeah, I am. Everybody's favorite. That's why we save it for last. That's yeah. why this se segment is segment three. Because I know about teasing. I know how to put on a good tease. Believe me. <sighs> I'll say But I pay oh, the tease. Shit. I pay the tease. I'll say that too. On the radio. <laughs> oh, yeah. On the radio, of course. <laughs> um, so, okay. To start out, I have a couple. I have an article and then a listener question and then another article. The last article is the happiest, so I'm going to save that for last. 
Right now, we're going to start off with something that might be a little bit more on the sad side, but I thought it was good anyway, so let's talk about it. Well, you got a tissue box out anyway, so what the hell? (laughs) Right. Get your (laughs) tissue box out. From theindependent.co.uk, and this was sent in by a listener, by the way, by a, I'm a listener, actually. Uh, postcoital dysphoria, why it's normal to sometimes feel miserable after sex. Okay. Yeah. Um, so before you judge, listen on. The world is so obsessed with how often, when, and where people are having sex that it's easy to forget to address how we feel afterwards. And for the people hit with an unexplained sadness after sex, it can be a frightening and lonely experience. Postcoital dysphoria or postcoital tristesse is the team is the, sorry is the term used to describe feelings of tearfulness, sadness, anxiousness, aggressiveness, agitation, or general melancholy after sex. So you feel bad after sex. Mm. What is most interesting about this condition is that it happens after sex that is consensual. Here's a quote from a person who has it. Even when I was single, the post-sex depression morphed into a different shade of empty. I always attributed it to fear of being abandoned, said Jerry Lynn, 27, about her episodes of post-coital dysphoria. I started to wonder if something was being taken from me every time I had sex, even though I enjoyed the act itself. Denise Knowles, sex therapist and counselor at relationships charity Relate, told The Independent, It's not uncommon to feel sad after sex. It's not necessarily due to a trauma or because they're regretful. It doesn't have to mean anything sinister is going on. She explained that it comes down to the explosion of hormones in the body after sex, including endorphins, oxytocin, and prolactin. Having sex is a hugely intimate act, and an orgasm releases lots of wonderful feel-good bonding hormones. Those hormones drop following the peak of an orgasm, and as you separate from the closeness that it brought about, a sense of sadness can follow. You go from absolute joy and pleasure to being separated. That in its own way can cause women and some men to feel a bit sad. But it's an orgasmic biological function which happens to a greater or lesser extent in many people. Now, that's really interesting that she describes that. So it's basically like what she's saying is that when you have an orgasm, you feel really good. Your brain releases a bunch of happy juice. It makes you basically fall in love with the first thing you see, which is the person you just fucked. Uh-huh. Right. And it may create this bond. And then when you separate, which most people do in modern world right now, unless you live with your partner or unless right. you see each other all the time or or unless you're married or whatever, um, you're you might be separating right afterwards and you might feel really lonely and, and abandoned after that. Yeah, I've actually I I've I know a gal who I don't know if she called it this exactly this condition, but maybe she did. Uh, but she told me about it a, a few years ago now um, that, yeah, like after she orgasms, she is super, super like tense. Like she is not happy. It is not OK. Um, you know, after she orgasms mm. and, and she actually, and she didn't want to have orgasms because of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She did not want to have orgasms. That's a problem, that. right? If it's affecting your life in a negative way. Yeah. That's a big deal. I mean, the same gal, like, you know, she's very pro sex, you know, she wasn't like against it. You know, she just, she didn't want, she really didn't want to orgasm, but I mean, you know, she was all about giving her partners, you know, BJs and whatever else and everything. Um, but yeah, she was not, she was very, very concerned about that. And that, yeah, I wonder, I mean, like what, is it just that the person like walked away or something? I mean, I, I don't, don't know. I'm, I'm tempted to sort of, um, react against them calling it like post-coital depression. And like, okay. it sounds like they're kind of medicalizing something that's just sort of 
a phenomenon of the modern world. Like mm. year, many years ago before Tinder and smartphones and online dating and people living separately and mostly being single and watching porn a lot, like before our modern lives, people would probably tend to spend more time together. They'd maybe more likely to stick around after having sex, right? Yeah. Or at least like be more likely to see that person again. I don't know. Maybe like that bond was a little bit stronger because we weren't bonded to our smartphones and devices and all sure. the other shit that we have to do in our lives. And so maybe it's just a phenomenon of modern life. And I totally get this. Like, I, I've had some experiences where I fooled around or had sex with somebody and it was like this bond just got created and I knew like intellectually that that wasn't right. Like that was not the right person for me. You know, mm. that was not a person I wanted to be to feel bonded to. But I felt it anyway because of the chemicals, you know, because of the brain juices, yeah. the happy juices. And so after I realized that, I just said, OK, I'm done with I'm done with casual sex, you know. Well, it's, it's not for me because I, I don't want to feel that bond to people because you get you do get you feel horrible afterwards. Yeah, I <sighs> I do anyway. I feel horrible when I have sex with somebody and then we get separated. It sucks. Right. Right. Yeah. I wonder if that's where some of the agitation and everything comes from is that you realize, oh, shit, it's like I just, you know, got with this person or something. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, it's, yeah, I mean, this is this. It's I'm just saying that I, I really believe that this is a thing. Um, oh, I do. Yeah. I do, too. I believe yeah. it's a legit thing. Yeah. And some people experience it. Now, maybe that's not what's going on for everybody. Like what I described, mm -hmm. you know, where I just feel sad because I'm separated with this person I just bonded to. Mm. Um, but maybe that is what's going on for more people than meets the eye. Maybe it's not this medicalized thing, you know. Sure. Maybe it's just a pretty simple solution and it's kind of a normal <laughs> reaction if you get separated from somebody you just fucked, right? Yeah. Now, I mean, did the article say whether or not it was more women that experienced this? Um, it sounded so, like they were hinting at yes, that. Yes, there there's a paragraph about that. Um, a recent study into this little understood phenomenon revealed that 46% out of uh, 230 female participants experienced postcoital dysphoria quote, a few times in the past month. Researchers found that the intimacy of the relationships didn't affect this. Okay, so that's kind of counter to my theory. So I, I guess they're saying it doesn't matter if it's a relationship uh, okay. or a long one night stand or whatever. Um, about uh, half of the women experience it. Wow. Uh, this chimed with a second uh, study in 2011 that found that one third of women feel depressed after sex, even when they describe the sex as satisfactory. Scientists believe this may have an evolutionary function. Um, so basically the, the function is like creating the bond between the people. Ah, yeah. okay. So, I mean, wow, that's very interesting. So they didn't say, either they didn't study men or they didn't say what percentage of men experienced it. They were they seem to be focusing here, at least in this article, on the women's reaction. Yeah. Well, I mean, I empathize with, you know, whoever this happens to, you know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's, that sucks. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I know plenty of people, both women and men and non-binary individuals mm -hmm. that like don't love and sex are like completely separate for them. Like they don't they don't feel that bond or attachment with casual sex and they can do it and it's fine. And like they just nothing happens. They don't get sad. But that's not me at all. <laughs> well, that doesn't describe me. Yeah, uh, I hate to generalize no, I don't. I, I generalize all the time. But um, <laughs> but I mean, 
like with guys, I don't know. I feel like guys that engage in a lot of casual sex, most of them, uh, frankly, are, are are drunkards. And um, I think yeah, that there's often alcohol involved in both ends. Well, but with guys a, a little, I think it's a little more, a little more commonplace. And I think it shuts off any of these potential reactions that we're kind of describing. Yeah, I would, I would forth. imagine that substances that affect your mood and brain yeah. do also affect this bonding mechanism thing. Yeah. Because in my anecdotal experience, a guy that, do, that doesn't really drink, you know, and I'm not talking about me at all. Um, I'm quite the opposite, but like, or not, I shouldn't say I'm quite the opposite, but whatever. Anyway, (laughs) guys that don't drink that do this, like, I feel like they get, guys can get really territorial, even around casual sex, Uh, like super territorial, unless they're these drunkards, you know? And actually like it's, it, for me, it's annoying and it's a problem that, that they get so goddamn territorial, you know, because like they, they get, what do you mean they get aggressive? Well, they get emotional, they get like super emotionally attached. I mean, like kind of what you were describing, I but think, I, I yeah, think it's I think far men worse. can get emotionally attached in their own way. You know, they, everybody talks about women getting emotionally attached and clingy and stuff, but I think guys can experience that attachment. It just maybe manifests in, in a different way because of how they're conditioned, you know, in the gender roles. Yeah. Of like anger is the only acceptable emotion that you're allowed to express, right? Right. Yeah, well, so that, that attachment, you know, comes out in, a, in kind of unfortunate ways. Anyway, I'm speaking very broadly, and I don't think that's necessarily fair, so we can, we can move on. But Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I just thought that was kind of interesting to bring up, and it was a listener email as well. But speaking of listener email, we have a, a relationship question. You want to talk about hey, it? Hey, let's do it. All right, cool. This person writes in and says, I'm hoping to get some feedback from you on a relationship I've been experiencing for the past six months. The circumstances. I'm 37, bisexual, and poly-oriented. He means polyamorous, and this is a a guy. I've been dating a very gay man, let's call him James, since late August 2016. I had just ended an 11-year relationship with a longtime friend, a woman named, let's call her Abby, in June 2016. I moved to Wyoming... (laughs) I'm changing all the details. The names and places are changed. I moved to Wyoming in May 2014 to continue my relationship with her after a long break, which started in May 2013, when she moved to Wyoming. The move to Wyoming has been very difficult for me. For the first time in my life, I experienced depression. But things have gotten much better after some study of positive psychology and journaling. The problem... I'm extremely conflicted about my relationship with James, the gay man, and have been since the beginning. The nature of the ambivalence is born out of several factors I'm still working out. The struggling to understand objections based on my instinct and valid relationship needs versus discomforts and uncertainty about myself, and the short time between ending the relationship with Abby and getting involved with James. I take relationships very seriously, and my behavior in this relationship is quite unbecoming of my best self. Hell, I could say that this has been the case not not long after moving in with Abby. I doubt the long-term validity of my relationship with James, because I don't feel like he possesses the degree of intellectual depth and solidarity I think I need in a long-term partner. Mm. I'm not quite myself around him, and that's my fault. I hold back my emotions and intellect quite a bit, because I prejudge his ability to communicate, quote, at my level. I don't say this lightly because there are some very positive things on the other side of this ambivalence. He's been very kind, understanding, respectful, and loving. We've talked about this stuff before, and I usually feel better after we talk, but I keep coming back to this crossroads. 
At times, he demonstrates more depth than I can connect with, and there is clearly a mutual attraction and fondness between us. I admire his efforts to better himself and his circumstances. I trust him because he's not the typical gay guy, despite the, quote, typically gay circumstances in which we met. I'm doing my best. Blue Oyster? Go ahead. (laughs) I know. That's why I was kind of laughing, right? Like, he's... (laughs) What is the typical gay guy? I mean, like... uh, Anyway, we'll talk about all that later. Um, I'm doing my best not to judge either of us too harshly. It's either a match or it's not. Why is this so hard? The questions. Why am I really conflicted about this relationship? Should I back off and stay single for a while longer? Am I uncomfortable being in a relationship again? Or is it more to do with perceived incompatibility between James and I? Do I really know what to do and the relationship? Do I already know what to do and the relationship, but I'm not doing it because I'm emotionally vulnerable right now? Did I jump into dating way too soon? Thank you for taking the time to hear me out and continuing to be extraordinary people. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for the question. Yeah. Um, so... That was a lot to digest, but what I I always like to start by paraphrasing back the question in sure. just a few words. Um, so what I heard is you're mostly focused on this guy that you're dating, James. He you kind of see him as maybe like not as smart as you, <laughs> a little bit dumb, well, but I mean, nice not, not and kind. Maybe not self aware, yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, a little bit like just there's not the intellectual connection is just not quite where you'd like it to be ideally, but he's nice and kind and you enjoy spending time with him and there are things you like about him and you have a good time together. Um, you trust him. The, the thing about the typically gay guy, I don't know exactly what he means by that, but I'm guessing Mm -hmm. because you just talked about trust that the question asker means that he doesn't think that James is going to cheat on him okay. with other guys. Okay. Despite having met him in a gay bar. I don't know, but just guessing. That's that's kind of what I'm getting from that, reading between the lines. Um, and he feels also a little insecure about having started to date James right after breaking up with Abby. Okay. Um, I would say... All these second thoughts, like asking us all these questions at the end of the email. Why do I feel conflicted about this relationship? Did I start dating too soon? Um, am I do? Am I feeling this way because I'm emotionally vulnerable? Am I uncomfortable being in a relationship again? Only you know the answers to that. But the the fact that you asked us all these questions is telling. I think I agree. He said, "Do I already know what to do? End the relationship, but I'm not doing it." <laughs> Well, I don't know. Sometimes when people ask that question, the answer is yes. Yeah. You do know. You you just want someone to give you permission. And, you know, it sounds like there is, whenever you break up with somebody, especially after a long-term relationship like you broke up with Abby, um, there is there is a lot you probably have to process. And you don't even realize all you have to process up at the very beginning. Sure. And especially if you meet someone else right away that you want to start a relationship, that can be a block to you processing everything you needed to process about the end of that last relationship. And so maybe those issues are coming back. Maybe there's things that you never processed about your previous relationship that you still need to deal with. And that doesn't mean you necessarily have to be celibate or single while you process them. It doesn't sound like you're going to be processing him with James because he probably won't be much help in talking about a relationship with a woman, yeah. right? If he's super gay and he's, you know, and he's also not really into the whole intellectual 
I don't know, self-awareness, the same stuff that you are. Um, so maybe he's not the best person to talk to about that. But so what? This is why you know this is a concept that poly people understand, polyamorous people understand. Maybe you have a friend that is more on the same page with you about processing emotional stuff. Sure. Uh, that you could talk to instead. Um, or maybe this is something you just need to do on your own. And while you do that, you can, you know, work on that in your spare time when you're alone. And then when you're spending time with your boyfriend, you know, just have a good time with him. Maybe he's maybe he's not Mr. Right forever, but he's Mr. Right now, you know, <laughs> and you <laughs> you just enjoy your time with him while it lasts. Right. Yeah. I mean, not every relationship is required to be like a long term relationship. Totally. Uh, I, I love that concept of the Mr. Right now where it's just like, OK, no, this this feel, you know, this fits a need. This, yep. this solves a need uh, uh, for the moment. And that's OK. Also, it's okay to take a lot of time after coming out of a relationship. In fact, mm-hmm. I dare say it's a damned good thing, you know, to, to do. Um, you know, I got out of a, you know, when I was out of a seven-year marriage, I mean, you know, you and I became friends pretty quickly, but, like, we didn't start dating. I mean, it was, what, a year? I mean, it was... Oh, oh way over a year. Yeah, it was a I long time. I would say it was more like two years. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, you know, it was a while before... I mean, and I, I had resigned myself after a relationship like that, that, look, I'm just going to be single forever. You know, like, that was my concept, but, you know, mm-hmm. life uh, life changes things. <laughs> and, <laughs> you and, met an amazing <laughs> offer, and you couldn't say no. I, I yeah. made you an offer... I made you an offer you can refuse. That's pretty much exactly what you did. <laughs> and, and that's and that's how it went down. So, but my point being is that, look, you know, it's okay to take that time. It's okay not to have, you know, that, you know, the, the, uh, a relationship in your life for a while or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's okay for a relationship, again, not to, not to be a long-term thing. I mean. Yeah. I mean, the thing I'm worried about is like he breaks up with James, who's a perfectly good partner. You sure. know, maybe he's not perfect, but he's Mr. Right now and he, you have yep. a good time with him. He breaks up with James. And he's like, okay, I'm going to be single. And then he doesn't follow through. He gets into another relationship. Right. You know, and then is just hopping around. That's the problem that I think like people who identify as polyamorous have that sometimes. They're like, oh, I can date a bunch of people. So I'm going to and I, or I have to. Mm-hmm. But no, actually, um, even if you identify or you feel like you're polyamorously oriented or inclined, um, you could choose to have zero partners for a while. You don't yeah. have to have multiple partners to be really polyamorous, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or yeah. to be fulfilling it, right? Just like people can be bisexual or or pansexual while in a monogamous relationship, right? right. They don't have it doesn't nobody takes away your poly card or your bi card if you are only dating one person or zero people, right? Yeah, but you know, I'll tell you, like when you do uh, the proverbial soul searching, and there is no soul, folks, but you know what I mean. <laughs> okay, when you do that, and if you find out perhaps that maybe James, in this case, uh, was maybe an emotional crutch, which I'm not saying is inherently a bad thing, I I think it behooves a person to be honest about that when. Um, the conversation comes up if say you do break up with them, you know, say, you know, I mean, you don't have to call them an emotional crutch. That, that might be a little crass, but no, just take responsibility for yeah. it. Say, hey, I really like you. We have a great time together. But you know that I made a mistake when I got into this relationship. I jumped into it too fast. The timing was not right for me. I didn't realize at the time when we started dating each other that I still had a lot to process about my last relationship and I need to do that and I need to do that alone. That's how you'd break up with him if you were going to break up with him. Yeah, I mean, but if you do discover, like through, you know, through through doing the the work inside that this person was an emotional crutch, I mean, you can thank them. You know, you can still say, look, you don't understand how how much you helped me. 
you know, uh, uh, with a bad situation that mm-hmm. I'm in now, I just need to go the rest of the way alone. You know, I mean, you can be very kind about it, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah, and- you don't even don't even necessarily have to break up with him unless you feel like he's holding you back in some way right. or that he's he's making he's not a net positive in your life. You know, right. but if you feel like he is a net positive and I would say like not just like 51 percent, like 90 percent positive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you feel like he's 90 percent positive or more, like there's no reason to break up with him. Keep keep dating him. Right. Yeah. And then you'll reevaluate that in the future if anything changes. But, um, you know, maybe you need to find a therapist to help process the end of your last relationship. Maybe there's other stuff even before that from previous, previous relationships that you've never dealt with or processed. So, I mean, yeah, I I admit, like, I've done the same thing. I've been there. Mm. (laughs) I understand. One relationship ends and I seek out another one right away and don't take the time to really process what went on yeah you know and then just kind of stuff it down under the rug but believe me it always comes up yeah. so good luck thank you for the question and i hope we sort of helped bring some clarity to it but if not just let us know yeah so okay um last article we i got had something here. fun i do not that, I that do wasn't have... fun I, I love talking about that with people but... yeah i do too um i love relationship questions um I do have something fun, though, and I think people are going to like this. This this is called Five Science-Based Tips to Make You Better in Bed. Is this from one of our producers? It is. It's from producer MK. Nice. Who just, she had a spidey sense. She sent this to us literally moments before we started recording the show. (laughs) And I was looking for it. I must have been manifesting it. I put it out to the universe that I needed a good sex article to make the sex segment really pop. And she picked up on my vibrations and she sent one to me. Wow. The law of attraction works. Yeah. The secret is real. No. Or we were just, just on the same wavelength or yeah. something, right? <laughs> anyway, or she or she happens to just send us a lot of great sex articles and other science articles as well. Yes. Uh, so anyway, this is from New York Mag, NY Mag, The Science of Us. Five science-backed tips to make you better in bed. While humanity's most basic activity may not seem like a subject for buttoned-up social scientists, sex researchers have started unearthing some sensible findings about sexuality, like that happy couples have sex about once a week, and that watching porn primes partners' attraction to each other. Mm-hmm. Duh. Um, every human desires to feel sexually confident and capable, which is why we've rounded up the best sex advice science has to offer. Below, learn how to get better in bed with five simple actions. So here's tip number one. Get high. (laughs) (laughs) According to a new small but in-depth study from New York University, marijuana goes better with sex than booze does, leading to, quote, magnified orgasms and less regret. Participants in the study claimed that getting high increased sensitivity while getting drunk led to desensitization and more regret. Whiskey dick. Yeah, uh, works for women, too. The research also suggested that people hook up with fewer strangers while on marijuana, so take that how you will. So, I, I mean, I think there's some anecdotal stuff to this, like there's that cannabis there's lube. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff to this. Yeah, <laughs> I've never tried it myself, actually. No, me neither. Um, but... but I'm not a big cannabis consumer at all. In fact, I've never really consumed cannabis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> take away my cool card if you want, but I, just, I don't know, it's just not my thing. Yeah, same here. Um... What, what, Fine if it's somebody else's, though, please, by all means, rock and roll. You know, I will say there's a couple of drugs I have tried. Um, I got this gel 
once one time. I don't know what it was, but like it has like yohimbe and like ephedra in it or something like that. And it's a gel that you rub on your genitalia. Like I put it on my clit and it actually made like it increased the blood flow or something. Wow. Because it was great. It was definitely did enhance my orgasms. Wow. Yeah. Why didn't we talk about this? I don't know. We'll have to find some more of it. I, okay. I mean, I think I got it at like Walmart or something. Well, we, 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 have, we have a friend who ordered like the cannabis oil stuff. Yeah, we have two friends actually. Okay. We have a couple friends who've tried that and probably many more that we don't even know about. Right. And they all raved about it. They yeah, said it yeah. was amazing. The, the one I can say, she she said it was wild. Yeah. Uh, so, and that, that was... That... I might do that. If I didn't have to smoke it, I might, I might put it in my puss. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're saving this episode for later reference. <laughs> Put it on the bucket list. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I mean, alcohol is alcohol is bad. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> alcohol is um, something that a lot of people use to get sort of loosened up in preparation for being about to have sex. But there's a really fine line that if you cross it, it's not good. You know, you drink too much and you're just not really able to function sexually sure. or otherwise. So, you know, maybe one or two glasses of wine, but not like three or four, not like two shots, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I um, just, I, you know, with alcohol, with guys, I think it, it just, you know, it just kills performance, you know, in in my opinion. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, I think it's true, you know, as, as well. Um, I mean, with women and I, I say this all the time, you know, like I really understand why, why women, you know, why, why, why women drink. Uh, I mean, when you're, you know, especially like, you know, when you're looking to have fun for a night or something like that, because society with, with women in particular is just so brutal on women, you know, that like for them to get past all these societally imposed inhibitions, like I really, I, I empathize and I really get that. Oh yeah, there's you know? so much shit to deal with. Yeah, definitely. I've had, I've had that experience where women were not comfortable getting sexual with me unless they had some alcohol. Right, right. So, and and I just, you know, I I, I get that. I understand that. So, you know, I just want to, you know, have empathy for that. But anyway, right. please continue. Um, and I don't mean. That sounded creepy. Like, I did, don't mean that they were doing anything that they wouldn't consent to. Or you were getting like liquored up? <laughs> no. And I wasn't giving it to them. They were, I was like, okay, come on, let's get in bed. And they're like, okay, I'm going to have a glass of wine. You know, it was more like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. like they wanted to, they already wanted to before they drank, but then they couldn't get loosened up and they wanted to get loosened up before mm-hmm. they got down to it. Sure. Anyway, sure. Um, <laughs> Number two, make your special someone actually feel special. This is a great one. I'm a big fan of this tip. A new study out of Israel, Brian, (laughs) funded by the Jews. (laughs) A new study out of Israel found that- It's the Illuminati. They're they're hypersexualizing civilization. That's right. God damn it. Yes, we are. (laughs) Sorry. We? When did you get your membership card? I haven't gotten mine yet. Well- born with it (laughs) (laughs) a new study out of israel found that when people felt their partners were being more attentive toward them they were thirstier for their partners and they had more sex just like the drake lyric see you see as soon as you see the text reply me suggests sorry just like that lyric suggests responsiveness may be the key to keeping the fire burning in a long-term relationship Scientists reason that when you feel your partner is responsive to you, then you see your partner as someone desirable and worth pursuing. 
And yeah, it does feel good when someone answers you right away. Like whenever I text you, Brian, you you always do respond right away. Yeah, it's awesome. Instantaneously, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, well, I mean, this is the thing. I, you know, it's... and that that feels really good. Same same thing on the flip side. <laughs> when you text someone and they ignore you for days, that sucks. That doesn't feel good. <laughs> no, right. Well, but I I think what it is is that you get that sense when someone immediately responds back that they, you, I mean, you, you get that feeling that they desire you. Oh yeah. You know, and exactly. then shared. And, and everybody wants to be desired by yes. someone that they want to desire them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not just by a random yeah, creep great, on the bus, but <laughs> everybody yeah. wants to be desired by a person they find desirable. Too. Yeah. You don't need everybody getting all over you like zombies or something like, oh, I yeah. desire. <laughs> and, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's really what's going on there is that you feel reciprocated and like, and, and I think you feel, uh, uh, a an aspect of desire, you know, of being desired. So, yeah. Right Love on. it. I agree with that. Um, uh, number three, understand that having good sex takes work. I love that. Oh, fuck yeah. Scientists from the University of Toronto analyzed how the way you frame your expectations about sexual chemistry shapes your sexual chemistry. They found that couples who believed you had to put in effort into sex in order for it to get better reported higher satisfaction in both the bedroom and the relationship. If you fall into this category, it means you don't let a sex disagreement put a strain on the relationship, therefore making it more resilient. Oh, that is such a great piece of advice. Yeah. Sex and relationships take work. Read about that shit. Get better at it. Strive to be better. You got to work at it a little bit. I mean, it shouldn't be like grueling work that your heart's not in and you hate, but like it's fun to learn more. And you you have to expect that you're going to have to meet your partner halfway in resolving disagreements and you're going to have to be enthusiastic about doing that learning and figuring things out together as you go along. Otherwise, it's not going to work. It's not like you know, a lot of people think you get married and then suddenly it's no work. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> like, it's a ton of work. Yeah. <laughs> and not and not like bad on fun work. It's fun work, but it's, you know, it's still you got to put effort in. Do you agree, yeah, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the old saying that, uh, you know, the more the more you put into something, uh, the more you get out of it. Yeah. And I think that totally applies to sex as well, uh, you know, in a bunch of ways. The more dick you put in, the more you get out. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, that's... Uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, learn about this stuff and, and like in having that enthusiasm in the bedroom can be infectious, you know, oh, and, yeah. and it's so important because nothing will turn me off more than if I recognize that the other per you know, the other person mm -hmm. really isn't excited about oh, it. And it's yeah. just like, oh, well, what the hell? You I know? know. I was going to say the same exact thing. Yeah. Like definitely have experienced that before and just like, okay, well, what's the fucking point? What are we doing here? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so read up on stuff. I mean, you know, nothing replaces actual experience, of course, but yeah, I mean, read up on it and, and hell, I mean, what you find out, the work you put into it, what you read about and everything, talk to your partner about it and say, hey, I'd like to try this on you and I'd like to try this on you. I mean, and that, that gets things very, you know, I mean, that usually gets the person very excited. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, this this seems almost too obvious, uh, but apparently a lot of people don't realize it, that, look, it's not just wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I mean, really, it isn't, you know, like, take the time with this shit, learn this shit, you know, go, go yeah. There you go. Go ahead. Right on. All right. Number four, don't study texts on sex. Study your partner. Aha. Uh -huh. 
Beyond the basic anatomy of knowing what goes where, the best thing you can do to get better at sex is listen to your partner. Sexual relations, like any other relationship, comes down to communication, and research suggests that what really drives settle sexual satisfaction is rapport. You can't rely on noises or gestures. You must rely on positive guidance. So they're saying, like, ask your partner what feels good. Don't read books about it. Although there's value to reading books, nah. but, like, you have to use the books as a starting point and then try all those things on your partner and ask them what they like the best. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of what I was saying, is that, like, like talk to them about it. Say, I'd like to try this on you and stuff like this. And then they can say mm. no if it's not any good. I'd like uh, to try impregnating you with alien eggs. Yeah, like, say that to them and see how it goes. You know, I mean, if, if they say yes, yes Brian, then... Uh, let's try that tonight. All right, well, <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, then then the person's a keeper, in my opinion. But uh, yeah. <laughs> <you know? laughs> that's right. But anyone uh, who's willing to put up with your alien egg fetish is is a total keeper. Yeah, I mean, put a ring on it. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, just just talk to each other. Like I don't. I, I think people have this fear that if you ask questions during sex, like you know, does this feel good? Um, would you like me to do this and all that, that somehow kills the mood or something like it's, it's the, you know, the verbal version of putting on a con of having to wait to put on a condom. Uh, not at all. I Mm -mm. think, I think talking and and there's, you know, there's good ways that you can, or not good ways. There's sexy ways in which you can kind of even, yeah, we just talked about it last week, right? last week on the show, um, you know, of how asking those questions is part of like you weave it into dirty talking. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like. I don't know, clinical or like take you out of the mood, you know, Mm -hmm. you just work it in. Yeah. And here's and here's a really important point that I don't know that this article brings up. And that is even what she said last night may be completely different the next night. Yes, that's okay. true. Yeah. So it doesn't hurt to keep asking. Uh-huh. Because people what you know, whatever oh, hormones are nipples flying. are a great example of that. Sure. Women's nipples, you know, sometimes with their cycle that varies, like the sensitivity. Like the sensitivity on some women's varies a lot in the course right. of uh, a month, you know. So um definitely yeah. ask about that. Or just, you know, they may be in the mood for something different tonight you know yeah last night they want to do one thing this tonight they want to try something else yeah like never ever say oh but last night you said it was okay oh don't even go there don't even go there (laughs) right just if she says or he says or whatever says you know no that doesn't feel good right now then it just doesn't feel good stop move on to the next thing you know that that is so key to understand that people when it yeah when it comes to sex people change they can change by the minute if they want to and that's okay it's part of the fun yeah exactly they don't even need a reason they can just change their mind change their body sensations and then the last one is be more altruistic. It turns out that people are really just looking for kindness in a partner. According to new research, altruistic behavior significantly predicted how satisfied partners were with their sexual behavior and their number of sexual partners. So there you go. Five tips to be better at sex. Right on. We're done. I think we'll end on that note. This is Sex and Science Hour, but we'll be back with the after show. So stay tuned. You've just heard Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week.
Here we are. We never really left you. Uh, so we fund our show with stuff.sexandsciencehour.com, which is our little Amazon affiliate link. And if you go there and do your normal shopping on Amazon, it will not affect the price you pay, but it will give us a little bit of a cut, which we use to fund our show. And also... Um, it creates this handy-dandy little list of things that people bought over the past week. And then we can talk about them on the after show, which is always really cool because yes. we get to speculate about it, talk about book reviews and movie reviews and product reviews and things like that. And, um, you know, there's some interesting conversation in there. And it's different every week. People love novelty. If there's one thing we've learned from porn, people love novelty. This is true. <laughs> you know, that list. So two things. Yeah. That list we just covered of the five things. Yeah. So one is, is I don't think they ever talked about how, like, watching porn. No, that was in the first paragraph before they got right. into the tips. It said right. um, porn is like a pre-game like game for sex, like yeah, watching now, porn together with your partner that well, you're about to, touch to fuck. On yeah, I want to touch on that for a second, uh -huh. because I think this is true. Now, granted, my personal oh, favorite, yeah, my personal favorite is 90s softcore Oh, uh, me porn, too. Because it's you great. get some story. You know, and you get it's some not... story. It's not crass. It's just tasteful, and it's like, it's not like too too much for me, anyway. Right. Yeah, which everybody has different, you know, thresholds certainly. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think that's a that's a fantastic thing, and I know you know, and and the the reason I wanted to, to bring it up is because I know that that kind of the common uh, uh, or the the popular mindset or the popular opinion amongst sexologists or whatever is usually that. Or relationship coaches or something is that, well, once you start watching porn in the bedroom, you know, together, the relationship's over. Really? You know, like, I've oh, never yeah. heard them say oh, that. Oh, th this is very I've heard popular. them say if you're watching it alone, then you're in trouble. <laughs> no, no, no. They they say once you have to add in porn, that means that, like, the sex is boring and you're really not connecting with each other and you're connecting nah. more with what's on the screen. I think it's total horseshit. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, too. really, it's, it's just like, it's no different, in my opinion, than listening to heavy metal while you're working out. Right. Because it, it just, just enhances the experience. Yeah, a it just bit. pumps you up. It just gets you going. You mm -hmm. know, it's not like, uh, you know, somehow you're cheating on heavy metal or something. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, I mean, well, metal. I mean, you're lifting big iron and metal. It's hey, <laughs> but uh, you know, so so that that's something that I I think really gets uh, ignored a lot, unfortunately, because I, I really do think it's helpful. Um, now you want to be careful. I mean, because there's some you know. Well, again, everybody has different thresholds on what porn works for them. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the other thing was is that, yeah, admittedly, I have a, like a number five. I have an issue with the word altruism. Yeah. But I get the point because it's something that I say on this show a lot. And that is, is like, look, if, you know, when you're having sex, don't make it about your dick. Like, you know, and, and there was that article that was going around from Cosmo this week that was mm -hmm. like, it's sexist when men um, give women orgasms or when the, when men feel a, a sense of accomplishment from supposedly giving a woman an orgasm right because they're bec the idea i guess was because men are viewing it as like an achievement you know like it's it's about the man feeling proud of himself because he made the woman come it's not like a sense it's not like oh he's genuinely happy for her pleasure it's like it's focused on the man it's still about the man oh but i think they kind of trolled people because people got mad and they're like oh no these feminists are saying it's bad to have orgasms yeah it's not true i mean <laughs> yeah I, I mean i can imagine there's a lot of guys that have that mindset not just guys oh I mean, there are tons or, of guys I, there's that lots have of people that, that yeah i mean certainly i think it'd be a little more prevalent there but i mean you know i think a lot of people could have that mindset uh but it's a mindset 
it's not like by the very nature of the act like that's yeah that's preposterous exactly that's the point they were trying to make is like it's it's a mindset that you can get yourself out of <laughs> yeah okay. that you can realize you have and get yourself out okay of. as long as they're saying that it was just a mindset yeah. i mean you know I, I love heinlein's i mean it's been my definition of love pretty much my whole life is that you know love is when another person's happiness is intertwined with your own and no, so yeah you know like me giving you an orgasm and you being happy about it, you know, like, yes, that makes me happy. Not because it's, you know, fucking Xbox achievement unlocked. It's because you're happy. Yeah. And so I'm happy, you know. And, and yeah, I mean, and certainly. I would say like a man doesn't give a woman an orgasm or vice versa. It's sure. like you're helping that person to achieve an orgasm. That's a great way to think own. about it. it. It's not like a gift that you're giving them and only you can give it, you know? Yep. That's a great way to think about it. I mean, and I don't think it hurts even really to like to have pride in one's own technique either. I mean, really, but like to somehow like think that you're on some conquest uh, of how many orgasms and all this shit and how many women you've given them to. And everything. I mean, that that's where that mindset comes in that I think is ridiculous. Uh, so anyway, but yeah, I, I get what they're saying about altruism. It's just it. You know, for me, that's kind of an ugly word, but but I I, I don't think they mean it in the sense that, uh, you know, be completely selfless. Never think about yourself, which I think is, right. is completely impossible for a human being to do because every human acts under enlightened self-interest, whether they realize it or not. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, like, I think they're saying get get turned on by the act of pleasure, your partner's pleasure. Yes. You know? Bingo. And absolutely. And, and what a turn up. Yeah. Oof, oh, for sure. The best. <laughs> awesome. So anyway, we can get to the uh, to the stuff.sexandsciencehour.com purchases. We did actually get an email I wanted to read. Oh, yeah. Let's um, do it. it was explaining somebody bought like a bunch of square stuff. Like the square terminals oh, yeah, about yeah, yeah. a while ago, yep, and the, the person who bought them explained it. Hi, Stephanie and Brian, they said. I happened to be listening to the after show when you listed all the square and iPad junk I brought through your link. This is funny because I don't always get to listen to the full Sex and Science Hour show and not always the after show. Stephanie asked to know where it went, so now you know. It went into my new cafe in San Francisco where Ooh. I serve tech bros expensive coffee that they use Apple Pay to give me their money. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> Here are some photos if you want to see. And he actually sent us a couple of pictures. Yeah, so, it's fantastic. Uh, no one in the photos is me, but I did attach a couple of me because I know what you look like. So it's only fair that thank you. I like that egalitarian and my 96 Jeep that I love. Hell yeah. Wait, 96. <laughs> what what kind of Jeep was it? Uh, I don't know. 96 Jeep. Well, if it's a, if it's a Wrangler, he's pulling a joke. Um, I don't know. But if, it, if it's a Cherokee, then then it's fine. This is something... What, so, because there was no 96 Jeep Wrangler? There was, right. So, oh, it's a Tahoe. Oh, okay, it's a, yeah. it's a Tahoe. It's The picture is labeled Tahoe. Okay. Let me look at it. Yeah, okay. All right. So that that's not a Wrangler. But anyway, <laughs> <Okay>. so... <laughs> So, but this is, this is something, so here's something sex and science our listeners can walk away with. Okay. If somebody tells you that their Wrangler is a 96 Wrangler and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Like they're usually pulling some kind they're of a joke on you. They're pulling your leg because there leg. was no Wrangler in 96. Exactly. Now I know this. <laughs> I know this because of you. Yeah. I know this because like I, I've had a 95 Wrangler. Uh, my brother did as well. And we used to bust people's chops, you know, w with that. You know, when they'd say it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I love Jeeps. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, and they'd act like, you know, they're really big Jeep fans and everything. And we'd say, oh, yeah, we got a 96 Wrangler. And they say, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And like, you know, we'd, we'd call their bluff. Like, you know, they're really 
they're probably not that much into it, you know, and it's just, it's a funny thing. So there you go. There's a survival uh, social tip for you. Right on. Um, he said, I buy lots of stuff through your link, like those stash tea boxes. That's me. Brian, I just stopped sending you Bitcoin so I could do Patreon. Woo! I really appreciate you giving me access to the OneDrive content. Okay, yeah, now it gets a little bit more personal. But um, yes, thank you for telling us about yeah, that. Yeah, this guy's a sweetheart. Yeah, I mean, he's it, super cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's... Oh, and one last thing. Stupid Square went down today for an hour. Coffee shops around, around the United States could not process credit card transactions for an hour today. My hope is that everyone at South by Southwest freaked out. Central point of failure. As cool as Square is, it also sucks. So are you saying it's rather square? Ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking for a better solution, he says. <laughs> Yay, Bitcoin. Yeah. Zcash. Yeah, yeah, Bitcoin. Absolutely. Although, I don't know, nobody's going to be buying cups of coffee on chain with Bitcoin yeah, well, now because uh, the scaling thing. Oh, boy. Oh, yep. yeah. <laughs> it's a bad scene. <laughs> Segwit FTW. I don't know. Whatever. And I'm looking at these um these pictures of the coffee shop. It's really cool looking. I mean, way better yeah. than like any Starbucks you've ever been in. Really cool. Very nice space. Awesome. So thank you. Thank you for the pictures. I can't really describe it much beyond just saying that it looks um, cool. It looks cool. And I don't, I would give him some free advertising, but I don't know if he wants to be identified. So, yeah. Um, we'll catch you next time if you yeah, want Yeah. If be. you're a tech bro, you're probably already in the know. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, all right. So what did people buy through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com this week? Well, the first thing is, um, you know, rather boring, but uh, you need it sometimes. GT Water Products Drain, Drain King Unclog Hose Attachment. It uh, is a is an unclogger for drains. Oh. So like you put like this is funny. If you have a block in, in your drain, if you have some kind of blockage, this is like a nozzle that you can put on the drain and then you screw it onto a hose and then you turn the hose on and it forces the shit down your drain. <laughs> Bunch of hosers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. We had uh theocrine or teacrine energy and stamina boosting supplement, hundred milligrams, sixty capsules. Cool. From oh my god, the name of this company I don't know if this is for real. From double wood supplements. <laughs> <laughs> double wood? Wow. Okay. Uh, okay. So what does theocrine do? Enhance energy. Theocrine provides a noticeable boost to mental and physical energy, similar to that of caffeine. Studies have shown that theocrine increases one's motivation and ability to concentrate. Studies have found no tolerance forming to theocrine, even after weeks of daily use. Oh, it's like a nootropic thing. Ah, um, okay. Wow. Ingredient theocrine. So I've heard of theanine. Theocrine must be like some other chemical der derivative of that. Mm. And yeah, I mean, that's what they say. It's like, a, I don't know, a cognitive enhancer or something like that. These claims have not been evaluated by the FDA and all that shit. So <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But Well, don't take it with a grain of salt. No. But take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. figuratively. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've heard about this. I mean, I've, I'm a big caffeine consumer, mm -hmm. right? I drink a lot of tea. Same here. Um, I've never tried combining it with theanine, which is what you're supposed to do. Caffeine plus theanine is like some kind of nootropic thing okay. where it like improves memory and like concentration and shit like that. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not that much of a type A that I really feel like I need it. Like, I feel like my cognition's pretty good the way it is. Yes, so, it is. Uh, I'll say so. Stick with it. 
Um, but I mean, it's cool to experiment with that kind of stuff. You know, sure. If you found something that really enhanced your your mind, I feel like you'd probably want to eat it all the time, right? Yeah. But the question always is like, do you get a crash afterwards? And I don't think you do with that with theanine, but I don't know. I'm always a little bit worried about that. You know, mm-hmm. anything that claims to enhance anything, is there always is there a rebalancing afterwards? Does it stress out your adrenals or whatever? Like, why why wouldn't wouldn't your body just operate at that level all the time unless there was a cost to it? You know, right? Or there was a you know a different diet maybe that would naturally give you that right? Yeah, you know, that that operation and maybe in a more efficient way. Sure. Mm. I have to say though, I just, I started taking this supplement called Adrenal Support. Um from i i don't know where it's from but i'll look it up um and it's basically like ashwagandha which is an herb we've talked about on the show and then like some b vitamins and stuff and a few other things and um i feel like it really makes a difference Mm. um because especially if you go through a period of stress your adrenals get kind of burned out sure um you know they're making a lot of cortisol and especially if you're a woman they will steal the building blocks for um, from the progesterone pathway and make it into cortisol instead if you're stressed out. Mm-hmm. So you will have worse PMS if you're stressed out the month before. Right. So mm-hmm. um, that's one of the main reasons I've I've been taking it because sometimes I get bad periods. But this this month it was the best ever. Not maybe not the best ever, but it was really good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. It. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, we had a hand-blown 600, too much information here on Sex and Science Hour, <laughs> hand-blown 600 ml thick-range coffee and tea server. So this is like one of those glass coffee pots that you would see in like a in like a diner, you know, where they have the decaf and the regular, but it's a little more modern. It's a better design. It's, uh, I don't know, it just looks nicer, I would say, $20 price point. And, you know, you could probably put it on directly on the stove, on at least some stoves, and uh, keeps it hot. Nice. 2.5 millimeter thick, heat-proof, microwave-safe glass. Fantastic. Keeps your coffee warm longer. Very cool. Easy Off Professional Fume-Free Oven Cleaner Aerosol. Number one bestseller in household oven and grill cleaners. Handy. Yep, seven bucks add-on item dust off dispose somebody's doing some cleaning right on <laughs> dust off disposable compressed air oh cool great um, for cleaning keyboards yeah that's that's the biggest use you know you plug in that little red straw yep. and then you go to town on your keyboard this is a two pack of 10 ounce cans also number one bestseller in compressed air dusters category you know, the categories are getting increasingly uh, more narrow. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Yes. And then everybody's like, oh, I'm the number one bestseller in like um, transgender midget erotica, you know, like, <laughs> and it's like, okay, of course you are, because you're the only book in that category, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like all these authors, that's what I'm talking about. The Dirt, organic, natural, fluoride-free toothpaste with MCT coconut oil, Royal Rose Cacao Mint. Oh, I know Onnit was selling an MCT oil-based uh, toothpaste. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, okay. This, I've seen this advertised. Um, this is like some kind of charcoal-type toothpaste that's supposed to, like, pull the shit out of your teeth. And then also it's got the coconut oil, so it's kind of like a... Oh, like oil pulling. Yeah, a yeah, little I do bit that. like oil pulling, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. Yep. Yep, that looks pretty cool. We actually had two of those that were purchased. One of them was... Well, how much did it cost? 
15 bucks. Yeah, no, then wow. that's right. No, that's, Plus five shipping. Yeah, that's about right. The oh, one from Onnit was like 25 bucks. But the wow. thing the thing is, it's like, it's I don't know if this is the same, but it's like a little powder. It's not like a paste that comes out. Right. And it lasts you for freaking ever. Like, yeah. We have um My Magic Mud, which is kind of a similar product, which is just yep. made out of clay or something. And you yeah, brush yeah. your teeth with it. Um, I don't know. I find it to be pretty good. But yeah, that stuff's going to last forever. Yeah. Uh, so I've never tried the dirt, but I think it's a similar thing. Um, one of these was regular chocolate mint, and the other one was rose chocolate mint, and they're oh, slightly different. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a good flavor for toothpaste. I like that. It is. I used like a Crest once when I was traveling that was like a chocolate mint, mm-hmm. and I mean, like nine-year-old me would have been just <laughs> jumping up and down. It's like, oh shit, this is like candy, man. I get these kids' toothpaste that are like blueberry, strawberry, raspberry. Yeah. And they're so good. I love them. Yeah, it's awesome. And then finally, our very last item is Scooby Apocalypse 11. It's yes. a comic. <laughs> Great issue. $3.99. <laughs> love this series. So that's going to do it for us. Do your shopping at stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Do us all a favor. Be on our after show and send us your listener questions, your relationship questions, comments, anything else you like. We love you. Thanks for being our listeners. You're the greatest. (laughs) See you next week on sexandsciencehour.com. 